Now, it's been a joy to walk through this Child of the Promise sermon series over the past few weeks of this Advent season. Pastor Dan dug into some prophetic imagery from Isaiah as we considered that the light is dawning with the arrival of Jesus. Pastor Aaron talked over the past two weeks about how the incarnation, when God became flesh, had began a new era when the curse was broken and when the kingdom had come. Each of these pieces of the grand story that we tell about this child of the promise were things that happened when Jesus was born as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem. But as Pastor Aaron was framing and shaping this series, he offered me the opportunity to share today about something that eventually happened after the arrival of Jesus, but not immediately. Today we're going to talk about the fact that the child has spoken. And I believe that Jesus of Nazareth, while both man and God, did not come out of the womb speaking. Not Aramaic, Greek, the King's English, or Ewokese. The speaking came later, and with that speaking came the promises of Christ. Now, I am a lover of Christmas. I love it all. We've got a collection of Christmas movies that we watch every year that never grow old. Elf and Home Alone and Home Alone 2, definitely not Home Alone 3 and 4. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life, the, the Charlie Brown Christmas, the Lego Star Wars Holiday Special. I got a collection of Christmas CDs that I listen to every year. Amy Grant, Michael W. Smith, the Canadian Brass, Pentatonix, the Beach Boys, Chris Rice, the Haven Quartet, the Boston Pops, James Taylor. I love me some Christmas tunes. And I love the lights and the decorations and the cookies, not including the gross ones, and the Christmas trees and Christmas socks right? Huh? I mean, come on. I love it all. But I often wonder, as I think many of us do, about how to rightly put together the secular and the more generic sentiments of the holiday season with the very specific spiritual origins of Christmas celebrations. I I don't think we have to reject everything that's not explicitly about Christ as somehow antithetical to the Christian message of Christmas. I mean, peace and joy and love and kindness and generosity, those are all good and holy and God-honoring things that we can embrace and celebrate, even in their most nebulous forms. But we can also be mindful that we as the church ought to keep Christ front and center in our Christmas celebrations. That's not the job of the world or the government or corporate America, right? That's, that's our job. That's the job of the church. But even when we do so, even when we keep our eyes on the babe in the manger, we can miss something important if we let our hearts and minds only celebrate the arrival of Jesus. Because we, the church, know that the arrival of Jesus wasn't the beginning of God's redemptive story, nor was it the end of God's redemptive story. And as such, we do well to remember the Christmas story in its full context, not as a self-contained snapshot. Now, there's a small demographic sliver of probably mostly men probably mostly aged 30 to 50, who are at least vaguely familiar with the classic cinematic masterpiece known as Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. Uh, To be honest, I haven't even seen the whole movie. I've never sat down to watch it, but I've seen a handful of short clips on YouTube, which clearly suggests to me that it's probably not a movie I do need to watch. But it definitely has a few hysterical, brilliant, even insightful moments. And so a few of you know where I'm headed. The prayer scene around the dinner table. Now, while playfully irrelevant... This scene is really at its core a critique of how we, professed Christians, can easily misrepresent or truncate the very nature of Jesus. As Will Farrell's character folds his hands to pray, here is what ensues. Dear Lord, baby Jesus, we hope that you can use your baby Jesus powers to heal my father-in-law Chip and his horrible leg. Dear tiny infant Jesus, at which point his wife interrupts him and says, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up you don't always have to call him baby. 
He responds, you know what? I like the Christmas Jesus, and I'm saying grace. Dear tiny Jesus, in your golden fleece diapers with your tiny little fat balled up fist, then Chip interrupts, he was a man. He had a beard. Look, I like the baby version the best. Dear eight pound, six ounce, newborn infant Jesus, don't even know a word yet, just a little infant, so cuddly, but still omnipotent. Thank you for all your power and your grace, dear baby God. Now, this scene is intentionally absurd. But does it not point out the way that we can, without some thought, misrepresent what we celebrate in this season? In that spirit, I read an article from Christianity Today this week which asked this basic question, how many Christians absorb a Christmas message that never goes beyond who Jesus is apart from a baby born in a manger? I'm grateful for Pastor Aaron's desire in this sermon series to talk about the Christmas story in its full grandeur, including the curse way back in Genesis and moving through the messianic prophecies in Isaiah and spending a few minutes today with the promises of Jesus because the gift of Jesus wasn't simply being born. It was a lot more than that. He became in time the child who has spoken. And what did he say? What did he offer us? What did he promise? Well, one of the ways that we can understand what promises Jesus offered us is to simply look at his I will statements. Over 30 times in the New Testament, Jesus says the words I will to describe the work that he was doing on our behalf the work of salvation and redemption and restoration, which was the purpose behind the incarnation. If Jesus was the child of the promise, those I will statements can be viewed as the specific promises that he made to us, to his children, and to the whole world. For instance, in John six thirty-seven, Jesus says, All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. That's a promise about the enduring nature of salvation which Jesus offers each of us. In Matthew 4.19, Jesus says, Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. That's a promise about the purpose, about the mission which Jesus offers each of us. In Luke 6.47, Jesus says in the parable of the wise and foolish builders, I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. That's a promise to guide us, to help us make right decisions, to understand God's will for our lives. In John 14.16, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. That's a promise that the Holy Spirit will be with us, a counselor and an advocate for us. John 14, 3, Jesus says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. That's a promise that Jesus desires us to be with him for all eternity, that eternal life is available to us and that he's coming back to claim the final and permanent victory over sin and death and to welcome us into that victory with him. The list goes on and on. And and I considered making this message a reflection on a smattering of these many promises. And then I thought, nah, maybe I should just focus on three of them because the best of sermons always have three points, right? It's Trinitarian and all. But as I continue to ponder what I might share today about the many promises of Jesus, the Lord pressed upon my heart a simple observation drawn out of Numerous conversations I've had with various people in my life over the past few weeks and months. And here's the observation. We are tired. We are tired. Many of us, for a number of reasons, are just plain tired. We're exhausted. We're worn out, a little beat up, weary, wary, and wonky. We're tired. And in light of that observation, I want to offer what will be a very simple message for us today about a singular promise offered to us from that child of the promise, maybe especially appropriate on the Sunday in Advent when we light the candle of peace. Hear the words of this promise today from Jesus found in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I want to read those words. When I hear those words, I'm tempted to just sprint past them. Yeah, that's great, Jesus, but what else? And today we're going to let those words watch over us, watch over us and settle in our spirits. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that promise spoken from the mouth of Jesus, from the child of the promise, that promise is a gift. The gift is simply rest, rest for our souls. In this season of gift giving and gift receiving, I want to invite you to consider whether or not you need to receive today and in the coming days and for all the days of the rest of your life if you need to receive the gift of a restful soul. We are not by default a restful people. Now, sleep is included in the concept of rest, but this is much broader than just our our sleep habits. It's about the nature of our, our very souls. And I don't think I need to spend a lot of time convincing you of the fact that rest is a lost commodity in 21st century American life. For many, maybe most, but admittedly not all of us, we may have a few world-class resters among us. And let this message be a simple affirmation of that which you already know and experience and practice, you restful unicorn you. But the rest of us feel palpably the absence of rest in our souls and in our spirits and in our lives. And many of us deeply long for it. So we'll spend some time today reflecting on the availability of that gift promised to us by the child of the promise. Now, as I press into this concept of rest, someone who's been around a few years may be thinking, haven't I heard this guy talk about rest before? Indeed, I have in fact preached several times over the years about the journey that God's taken me on to consider what he intends for us with the biblical invitation of Sabbath. Shabbat! This has been an area of personal passion and considerable growth in my life over really five, ten years. There's no way, there's no reason to pretend that Sabbath is not a critical piece of the puzzle of rest. In fact, the very next passage in Matthew, the beginning of Matthew 12, is specifically about Sabbath, about a weekly, one-day scheduled segment of intentional restfulness. But today I want to take a a few steps even further back to address the concept and and the gift of rest in its broadest sense, uber big picture. Sabbath is a piece of the puzzle of rest, but it's only a piece. And trying to create the space for us to embrace and receive the gift of rest. I'll just uh, address a few things that can very easily get in the way of embracing that gift of a restful soul offered by Jesus. I'll call them rest wreckers. One of them very specific, one of them much broader. Here's the first one, this specific one. The first rest wrecker is frantic pace. Frantic pace. As we all know, the pace of modern life has just increased and continues to increase at an astonishing rate. Sociologists have been tracking this phenomenon since at least the the mid-1950s when new inventions and modern technologies were exploding upon the scene with increased frequency and with obvious disruption to the flow of of typical human life. I just had the the bittersweet privilege of officiating the funeral service for a dear woman on what would have been her 100th birthday. It's staggering to think of the changes that she witnessed over the course of that century of living, not the least of which was the pace of our lives. Decades ago, Time Magazine Any of you remember magazines, these print publications used to come in the mail all the time? Well, Time Magazine noted the prognostication from sociologists at the time, anticipating what was on the horizon. 
The assumption was that advances in modern technology would allow us to accomplish all the work necessary for humans to thrive in significantly less time, such that everybody would need to cut way back in the number of hours they worked each week and the number of weeks they worked each year, and that everybody would be, t- would be retiring far younger. All of this would happen because there just wouldn't be enough work to occupy our time. So the vexing question of that day was how in the world would people figure out how to fill all of their available free time, all of the void in their empty schedules. Half a century later, the technological advances have not slowed down. And there are certainly aspects of our lives that don't take as much time as they once did. As an example of something I did just last night, I can plot a turn-for-turn road trip from my house to the Staten Island Ferry using Google Maps in mere seconds, including noting every Arby's along the journey from here to there. Side note, I don't know how in the world I ended up living in a town without an Arby's. I mean, that's not right. They have the meats. I want the meats. Okay, done with that. So, getting those directions used to take a half hour at AAA with the person at the counter tracing uh, over interstate highways with an orange highlighter onto four different maps. Some of you remember those days, right? Some stuff definitely doesn't take as long as it once did. But even with all of our time-saving devices, I would say that we have largely figured out how to fill our schedules, haven't we? We're not exactly sitting around twiddling our thumbs. In fact, we've just added more and more and more into the flow of our lives, moving at a faster and faster and faster pace, seemingly without respite. You know, microwaves and drive through lanes and Amazon Prime and self-driving cars and, and innovation after innovation, all designed for now, 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 more, 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 faster, faster, faster. Listen to this anecdote from John Ortberg, one of my favorite preachers and authors, and he shared this in his classic book, The Life You've Always Wanted. I love this story. Not long after moving to Chicago, I called a wise friend to ask for some spiritual direction. I described the pace at which things tend to move in my current setting. I told him about the rhythms of our family life and about the present condition of my heart as best I could discern it. What did I need to do? I asked him to be spiritually healthy. Long pause. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life, he said at last. Another long pause. Okay, I've written that one down, I told him a little impatiently. That's a good one. Now, what else is there? I had many things to do, so I was anxious to cram as many units of spiritual wisdom into the least amount of time possible. Another, another long pause. There is nothing else, he said. I love that story. It's simplicity, it's purity, it's clarity. What do we need to do to be spiritually healthy? And I would insert in light of this question of the intensity of the pace of many of our lives and the sense of exhaustion that many of us feel, what do we need to do to experience the restful souls? that Jesus offers us. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And what else? Maybe there is nothing else. If the frantic pace of our lives is wrecking our rest, how might we build rest instead? Well, that's, that, that's the rest builder is eliminating hurry. And for some of us, that specific point of the whole, is the whole message for today, right there. Maybe you need to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. For many, that's no small task. That's maybe a multi-year endeavor. But is it possible that we are simply living our day-to-day lives at such a frenetic pace that rest is out of reach, functionally unattainable, that the best we can do is make it to our next vacation or our next day off or our next Sabbath and just crash to physically recuperate? And then we're right back at it at the same unsustainable pace. Here's what's interesting to me. The prerequisite 
for rest is not inactivity. I read this from numerous biblical scholars this week. Ortberg says it this way, we must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. This does not mean we will never be busy. Jesus was often busy, but never hurried. Hurry is not just a disordered schedule. Hurry is a disordered heart. And I want to make that point clear so that you're not hearing this message as another Christian lament about the busyness of the holiday season. Honestly, I think that much of the activity of the holiday season is good and meaningful and pleasing and honoring to God, even if much of it isn't necessarily essential. I'm not suggesting today that we should feel bad if the past few weeks and next few weeks feel full. Full, even busy, is probably okay. God can meet us in the midst of full and busy, but it's hard for us to notice God and experience his rest in the frantic and the frenetic, in the hurly-burly of a hurried pace. While we may be overcommitted in doing too much, I think there's much power in that notion that ultimately we're not talking primarily about a scheduling question when we're talking about the invitation to receive the rest of Christ. Certainly our schedules and our felt need to pack as much activity into as small of a time frame as possible can interfere with our pursuit or our embrace of restful living. But at the core, the primary issue at stake here is a heart issue. And that leads into the second, the broad, the, the final rest wrecker. I'm calling this rest wrecker angst. Angst. Now, can we all just agree that angst is an awesome word? Angst. It's fun to say, but it's not so fun to live. Now, let me clarify what I mean by angst using a basic definition from Google. Angst is a feeling of deep anxiety or dread or persistent worry. And all of those things, anxiety and dread and worry, those are fundamentally heart issues. The source of that anxiety and dread and worry is multi-layered, multifaceted. We could dig up dozens of sources of the angst that many of us feel. Let's talk about a few reasons why so many of us feel so tied up in knots, an internal sensation that is mutually exclusive with a restful soul. Now, we can be angsty about our status, about our reputation, about our place in the pecking order of this world. It's one of the reasons why some of us are living at a frantic and frenetic pace. Because we have this internal impulse that compels us to compete in everything, to try to get ahead, to try to impress and justify our existence through achievement and accomplishment. And that kind of internal angst does not create room for a restful soul. Well, we live in a world that subtly and even explicitly chastises us if we're not trying to climb whatever ladder is in front of us. This reality is overlaid upon many values that undergird our society. Values like the, the Protestant work ethic, the importance of ambition and achievement and success, the need to acquire and accumulate and get ahead. And to be sure, none of these things are inherently bad in their own right, but all of these things can easily run at odds with a life of restfulness. And these things are so deeply embedded in our baseline assumptions that we often don't even give them any thought or consideration or reflection. I would point to the way we approach employment as one example of the assumptions that we can so easily make without necessarily considering the implications. Time and again, I've seen people take a new job because it's considered a promotion, almost on impulse. Upward mobility is so deeply baked into the culture of our lives that we just assume that when an opportunity is presented that is higher up the vocational food chain, we have to take it. More money, more prestige, more acclaim, you just do it. And whether or not that brings with it more grind, more expectations, more stress, more anxiety, more frantic pace, that's largely irrelevant. It's the myth of more, that more is always better. And I think that that's a lie from the pit of hell. More is not inherently better, no matter what our instincts or our peers might tell us. And I would suggest that we're all susceptible to the myth of more. 
which drives so much of our restlessness and exhaustion and our endless pursuits and our lack of contentment. And it can be extrapolated from not just pursuing more and bigger job opportunities, but pursuing more and bigger, bigger extracurricular activities for our kids or pursuing more and bigger social engagements with our friends or pursuing more and bigger purchases of hobbies or vacations or homes or whatever. Winning, achievement, ambition, they're central cogs in the machinery of our world, but I'm suggesting that they run at odds with the sort of spiritual life that God offers us in Matthew 11 through the promise of Jesus. If we take the yoke of Jesus upon us, there is rest available for our souls in being satisfied with whatever simple things God gives to us. And that requires us to care very little about what others think of us. Pastor and and author A.W. Tozer explains it this way in his classic, The Pursuit of God. Jesus calls us to his rest, and meekness is his method. The meek man cares not at all who is greater than he, for he has long ago described that the esteem of the world is not worth the effort. He develops toward himself a kindly sense of humor and learns to say, oh, so you've been overlooked. They've placed someone else before you. They've whispered that you are pretty small stuff after all. And now you feel hurt because the world is saying about you the very things you've been saying about yourself. Come on, humble yourselves. Humble yourself and cease to care what men think. I think Tozer nails it here. In the achievement-obsessed world that we live in, we will not have restful souls until we develop the ability to care only what God thinks not what others think of us. Living for the audience of one is an important way to release angst and to receive rest. Now let's just press into one more source of angst that I think is is crushing our ability to rest. And again, this this is big. This is pervasive. It seems to me that far too many of us feel the weight of the world on our shoulders as if it is our job individually or collectively to fix whatever is wrong. It strikes me as richly ironic that just about everybody I know who talks about the church is deeply concerned about the church. We all think that the church needs serious course correction. We all think that the church is is messed up. But we have many different reasons for our concern. Many different sources of our frustration and disappointment and disillusionment about the church. In some cases, our reasons for concern are diametrically opposed to each other. You think the church is missing its missional focus and prophetic influence because it is pro-floppy bacon. And I think the church is missing its missional focus and prophetic influence because it is pro-crispy bacon. Now that's obviously a ridiculous example, but pick a real issue. There are many from which to choose, and, and there are those positioned on either end of every continuum. We are split along a thousand lines of disagreement about what ails the church. And that's just within the church. We all agree that we should focus on the most important central things and agree to disagree graciously about the secondary, less important things. But we don't agree on what is important and what's not, about what's central and what's secondary. And we feel like it's our job to sort this out and get it right now. And we look at the points of tension between the church and the world between those who know and worship God and and those who reject and ignore God. That's an entirely different set of points of tension and friction and disagreement and frustration and anger. All of this provides us internal angst within our hearts and within our spirits. How do we find rest when all of these issues are swirling around us? Well, we cannot find rest if we believe that the resolution, the solution to these problems, the answer to these questions, the restoration of these messes is ultimately our responsibility to make happen. And this, to me, 
points to the only real antidote to our angst problem. How do we build rest? By growing in trust. We build rest by growing in trust. We can only find rest if we genuinely trust that God has this world and its many problems and his church and his people and our many problems all within the bounds of his control and that his love will ultimately prevail over it all. We can only find rest if we believe that we are not responsible to fix everything and everyone. We can only find rest when we release our grip on control and power and leave that in his sovereign hands. I don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not advocating for some sort of laissez-faire, disengaged form of discipleship. I'm not suggesting that following Jesus is like a perpetual cruise vacation. I'm not arguing for lazy Christianity or cheap grace or flimsy faith. I'm not proposing that we should be careless and callous and uninterested in the troubles of this world and the problems in the church. And I'm certainly not saying we don't need to worry about sin or injustice or idolatry. God cares deeply about what we think and what we say and what we do. He has important work uniquely created for us to do for the sake of the kingdom. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We were created to do good works, which God prepared for us to do. A restful soul is not a disengaged, inactive soul. God has work for us to do as a response to the work he's already done for us and in us. And that work, to be clear, is not even remotely limited to church work, right? I mean, the good works created for us to do include, but are not limited to official ministries of the church. All of it counts. Our jobs, our schooling, our family life, our social relationships, our front yard mission, all of it. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Colossians 3.22, excuse me, 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Following Jesus and receiving the rest of Jesus is not for the lazy. Biblical scholar Craig Blomberg clarifies the point about the invitation of Jesus to the restful soul in his commentary. He says it this way, makes, makes this point, I think, very clear. None of this implies that Jesus' greater righteousness, as illustrated in the Sermon on the Mount, is not extremely challenging or demanding. Jesus' requirements are no less stringent than those of the Jewish teachers, but they can be accomplished more readily because of the strength Christ provides through the Holy Spirit. Jesus did not escape the hard life, but he could experience rest and refreshment in its midst. Christians are not promised freedom from illness or calamity, but they may experience God's sustaining grace so that they're not crushed or driven to despair. The rest Jesus offers his disciples enables them to overcome a certain measure of fear, anxiety, uncertainty, and meaninglessness in the joy and peace of God's very presence in Jesus Christ. There's the secret sauce, friends. If we're able to overcome our, our angst with a deeper trust in Jesus, then whatever is disturbing us or unsettling us or worrying us, we can put all those things under the watchful, sovereign, caring love and grace of God. And even as he intends us to participate in his work, he does not intend for us to do so alone. When Jesus says in, in Matthew 11 that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, he's evoking the agricultural image of the harness which connected two oxen and allowed them to work in tandem. For the work God created in advance for us to do, we are yoked with him. We work alongside him. And let's be honest, he does all of the heavy lifting. 
I'm reminded at this time of year of the annual tradition after our family has cut down our Christmas tree at the Christmas tree farm of how we carry it together back to the car. Now, this is becoming less and less true as the kids get older, but over the years, carrying the tree together back to the car has meant me carrying the tree back to the car while the kids each grab onto a branch and pull on it in various directions, none of which are the directions in which we are headed. Functionally, in those moments, I am carrying the tree and dragging the children, but we are working together. And I never resented the fact that I was doing all of the work because we were together. And that was my job. And I was able. And their hearts were trying to help. Now, as they've gotten older, they are actually helping. This year, I didn't even touch the tree going back to the car. But I think there's something in that picture about the involvement and participation in God's work into which we are invited, but which never depends on us. God is worthy of our best efforts, but never dependent on our help to fulfill his purposes. And I'm trying to figure out what that means in, in a season of life when I am feeling disoriented about a number of things, trying to figure out what does God expect from me. Some longtime friendships have become unexpectedly complicated and in some cases even feel fractured over points of disagreement around a hundred different things. You know, one of the great gifts of the responsibility to preach is that I'm frequently given opportunities by God in the midst of sermon preparation to either embrace or to ignore the very thing that I'm standing in front of you talking about. My prayer is that the Lord has laid something on my heart when I preach, and then he often says to me, do you believe what you're about to say? This week, as I was processing the angst that I'm feeling on a number of levels, including relationally, I was reminded of a friend with whom I haven't really connected in many, many months. The last time we interacted directly, he was pontificating about a particular area of passion of his, with which I completely disagreed. And I told him, in no uncertain terms, that I thought he sounded like a fool, and that I thought completely differently than he did on this particular issue. Shortly thereafter, we parted ways and haven't really spoken for several months since that interaction. Now, this is a dear brother in Christ, a mentor to me, someone who I've always respected and appreciated. Each year at about this time, he and I get together to watch some NCAA women's volleyball matches. It's really just a fun thing we do together and enjoy some quality sport and talk about volleyball and life and our families and work and whatever. It's a restful, life-giving, relationship-building tradition. And so I decided a few days ago to reach out and invite myself over to his house to do what we have done for many years, intentionally setting aside the angst of the tension that had been part of our previous interaction, trusting that the bonds of Christian brotherhood were stronger than our difference of opinions, trusting that God had, had drawn us together as friends with purpose and intentionality, and that God's plans cannot be thwarted. And so I reached out, invited myself over to his house, and had several hours of delightful, warm conversation with my friend. God was in it. I think God was delighted with my delight at reconnecting with my brother. And we didn't talk at all about our previous point of disagreement. We didn't fix that. We didn't figure it out. But my soul was restful that evening. Now, I still think my friend was talking like a fool on that occasion months ago. I haven't changed my mind. My passion for that issue has not subsided because I think it reflects God's passion on that issue. I'm confident that my friend hasn't changed his mind. And we may re-engage in that conversation again. We probably should down the road. And if so, I will continue to speak my mind, hopefully graciously and thoughtfully in accordance with what I believe God has been teaching me. 
I think that's part of the good work that God has prepared in advance for me to do. And I want to do that good work with all my heart as working unto the Lord. But I was reminded sitting on my friend's couch that I don't have to have all of this figured out. I don't have to have solved all of the issues God has placed on my heart. I don't have to fix the world and correct my friend and bring him into full alignment with my way of thinking to be able to experience rest and peace in trusting that God's got it. He's got this little friendship. He's got everything. And while we will continually in this broken and fallen world with our sinful and fleshly desires, we will continually muck up the works. God's ultimate plan will not and cannot be thwarted. And when we really actually fully believe that to be true, we can find rest and experience peace within our souls as we trust in him. Now, as we go from here, I don't want you to leave today primarily with the sense that you have an assignment to do. Hopefully you have some things to consider and reflect on. If you're living with a restful soul, maybe you can look around at others and see if there's a burden that you can lift from somebody else's shoulders to help them find rest. Maybe if you're looking for rest, maybe the encouragement to relentlessly eliminate hurry from your life is something to consider and pursue over time. Maybe you're just tied up in knots, filled with angst about your personal problems or the church's flaws or the world's sins, allowing that angst of one variety or another to control your spirit and prevent you from living a restful life. So maybe asking God to help you to trust him more fully is the next step for you. Ultimately, you don't need to do anything, maybe beyond opening your hands and simply receiving a gift from the Lord. Pastor and author Gordon MacDonald defines the gift this way, a deliberate acceptance of personal rest and tranquility within the individual life, a rest that brings peace into the private world, Jesus seeks to press peace into the harried private world of a man or woman, but there is a condition we must accept this peace as a gift and take the time to receive it. The child of the promise offered us many gifts, made many promises. Today, I want you to simply, I I want you to simply allow this beautiful promise of Jesus to wash over your spirit. If this is a promise that you need to hear, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit would implant in your soul the seed of that promise of Christ, that in the, in the coming days and weeks and months and years, the permission to rest in him would germinate in your heart whenever you need it. The Prince of Peace, the God of Shalom, the giver of rest, he's got this world, all of it, and he's got you. And it's, it's okay not to do, not to accomplish, not to achieve, not to strive, but to simply rest in him. Would you receive that gift today and lean into the peace that comes from restful living, which the child of the promise, when that child had spoken, he told us, that he would give us if we would simply receive it. Join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we come today grateful, grateful for your word, grateful for for the story of incarnation that we celebrate this season, for the coming of Jesus Christ, our Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for not just what happened when he was born, but the outcome of all of the work that you did through the birth and the life and the ministry and the teaching and the example and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We thank you for the words of promise that he declared over his people in that day into all of eternity, the promises of that child. And we specifically thank you today for the promise that you give us that we can rest in you if we will simply come to you. We can have a restful soul. Would you help us to receive that gift? Would your spirit enter in, quiet our hearts as necessary over time, allow us to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives, to set aside our angst, to lean into a growing sense of trust, 
and in them, that our souls might rest in you. We pray that you do that work as you need to do in whoever that might be relevant for today. And we pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus.